We do thank you, Father, so much that you'd speak to us through your word by your Holy Spirit. And we ask now that as we look at the Bible, you would help us to understand what it means for us to have evil defeated and how this gives us great hope. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's certainly hard to deny the fact that all humans have an inbuilt longing for something more. We all have a longing for something better. See, we see the world around us. We know that it is not as good as it could be. We see the effects of greed and selfishness everywhere. Uh, People are getting richer, but they're not getting happier. People enjoy great experiences, but they're more alone than ever. We should really all be a whole lot happier in life, but the problem is that we're more depressed than ever, really. Our world is broken, and even the optimists know it. All sorts of religions and philosophies have tried to deal with these problems. I mean, Buddhism tries to stop us feeling emotions, and they think that is going to cure our longing for something more. Marxism tries to evenly distribute wealth everywhere. Uh, That will help us not be greedy, so you'd hope. And this endless pursuit of knowledge makes us think that if we can just somehow work out how everything works, then that will give us the answers that we need to have a perfect life. But all these human endeavours have ultimately done is fail. They have failed to make the world a better place. Deep down, we all have this longing for something more but we know that it's beyond our grasp. And the reason is that no matter what we do, we know that there will always be evil. No matter how hard we strive to make the world a better place, the problem is that evil exists and we won't achieve it while evil is there. And that is why these four chapters from the book of Revelation are so great, because in them we see that we now have a lasting hope for the future. We finally see the ultimate destruction of evil, which is what we've been longing for. And with it, the way is prepared for the true, genuine, utopian world that awaits those who are on Jesus' side. So we're going to look at four chapters of Revelation. Now, I'm going to skip bits. We're not going to look at it all. But the reason we're going at this pace is because we want to see the big picture of Revelation and not go down to the nitty gritty. So I'm going to skip verses here and there. We're going to read a bit ourselves together as well. But what we're going to see is one big episode here is we'll see the destruction of evil. And that is awesome news. And our journey all begins in chapter 17 as we see the fall of the city of evil. Verses 1 and 2 set the scene. One of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls came and spoke to me. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that's going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. The kings of the world have committed her and the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. John, who's getting this incredible vision, is about to see the punishment of the person who is called the great prostitute. See, the great prostitute will be punished. And that's what we see here. It's not literally one woman 
with that particular career. It's actually a, a figurative something or other. That's the key to understanding the book of Revelation. There's all these funny words and, and symbols and numbers and images, and this is another one of them right here. And so we see this prostitute, verse 3. So the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness. This is, this is John who got the vision. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, so like a red horse kind of thing, that had seven heads and seven horns and blasphemies against God were written all over it. Uh, she is there on this horse with blasphemy. The word blasphemy is it, it, it's something that makes God out to be less than he really is. That, that kind of is a swear word against God. And we see now about her power and attractiveness, but also her deep down filth. Have a look at verse 4. The woman wore, beautiful, wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewellery made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand, she held a gold goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. See, we've kind of got this beautiful woman. But at the same time, she is stained with immorality. And really, this in so many ways describes what our world is like. It is a beautiful world that God has created. And yet it is a world that has evil as well, that stains the world. It's just like this woman here. And now we see a bit more about what this kind of... It's, like, it's all in a bit of code, you see. What's this woman? Who does she stand for? What does she stand for? Well, verse 5. A mysterious name was written on her forehead. Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. Okay, so this woman, uh, she is actually linked in with Babylon. And uh, what is Babylon? Where is Babylon? All that. Well, if you know a bit of the Bible, you know that Babylon basically stands for everything that is anti-God. Everything that is anti-God. If you wanted one word to say this is a hatred of God, you'd say Babylon. That's what it stands for. It's the Babylon that, the, where they had the Tower of Babel, Babylon. It's also the place where Daniel got dragged away from Jerusalem and he was there in the lion's den and all that stuff. And it's also the, the figurative Babylon that ruled the, rule, ruled the people in the first century there in the readers of Revelation. And that place is in fact Rome. You know, cities are sometimes places where we see the best and the worst of people. So it is with Babylon. And whilst Babylon stands, there can be no end to evil. Babylon's got to go. And so we see verse 6. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her in complete amazement. I mean, if you had a camera there and you were able to see what John saw, this vision that he's put down here, this woman drunk with the blood of those who loved Jesus. John was really confused about all this. I'm going to skip a whole lot there, but basically it shows in the next few verses that it's talking about Rome. Rome was the place that hated Jesus, that hated the followers of Jesus and killed them. And so you see this connection right here. But Rome won't last forever. And we see that, in fact, 
Those who die, live by the sword die by the sword, and so it is right here with this woman. And her attacks are, well, friendly fire. Et you, Brutus? We see in verse 16, The scarlet beast and his ten horns all hate the prostitute. They will strip her naked, eat her flesh, and burn her remains with fire. Um, this is not consumption for children, really. It's uh, a bit graphic, but it's pretty full on. But what it is telling us in all of this is that evil Rome will not stand forever. I mean, what if I said to you that the United States will not stand forever and one day in a thousand years' time people would say, United States, what was that? Or if I said that about China, or if I said that about India, or the Great Britain, could you imagine that? Well, Rome trumped them all, and yet she would not stand forever. And so after all this, we see a change of scene. Another angel comes from heaven with authority and an important message. Chapter 18, verse 2. He gave a mighty shout. Babylon is fallen. That great city is fallen. She has become a home for demons. She is a hideout for every foul spirit, a hideout for every foul vulture and every foul and dreadful animal. The angels saying, guess what? Babylon that stands against everything that we are, that stands for the very centre of evil, the great Babylon, the great Rome, it has been destroyed. And so if you were there in Rome at that time, fearful for a knock at the door that they would come and take you away and murder you because you followed the Lord Jesus. If you're seeing this word from God that's come via the Apostle John, you would be of great relief. You'd be cheering that this has happened. And because Rome is going to die in this kind of way, God's people are told, get out of there. Leave Rome. Flee the city. Verse 4, then I heard another voice calling from heaven. Come away from her, my people. Get out of there. Don't take part in her sins or you will be punished with her. For her sins are piled as high as heaven and God remembers her evil deeds. Do to her as she's done to others. Double her penalty for all her evil deeds. She brewed a cup of terror for others. So brew twice as much for her. Basically, God says, get out of Babylon. God calls his people to leave Babylon. Because God is going to judge her for all the evil she's done. And it's not that God is waiting because he's ignoring the sin. It's not like he says, well, Babylon's too hard basket. Rome, that's just too tricky. I'll leave that for another day. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he is waiting to punish her, but it will happen. Verse 8, therefore these plagues will overtake her in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, she will be completely consumed by fire, for the Lord God who judges her is mighty. This is good news for God's people. It's pretty graphic. It's pretty full on. It's disaster movie stuff. But it is good news for God's people who have been beaten up so much for following Jesus. But it's not good news for those who rule in the city of Babylon. Verse 9, And the kings of the world who committed adultery with Babylon and enjoyed her great luxury will mourn for her as they see the smoke rising from her charred remains. Babylon the Great is now on fire and being burnt to a crisp. 
It's also bad for those who make a living from her. Skipping over to verse 11. The merchants of the world will weep and mourn for her, for there's no one left to buy her goods. Sounds like a superpower, doesn't it? Or skipping over to verse 14. The fancy things you love so much are gone, they cry. All your luxuries and splendor are gone forever, never to be yours again. And all the people cry, how terrible, how terrible. Verses 16 and 19. There's grief and sadness for them because Babylon, with its strength and its beauty, was also a place full of evil But they didn't see it. But God's people did. And so verse 20, God's people cheer. Rejoice over her fate, O heaven and people of God and apostles and prophets. For at last, God has judged her for your sakes. The destruction of the very epicenter, the very beating heart of evil is complete. And this destruction of godlessness brings us joy. I I tell you what, I I find it hard at places to read this stuff, to cheer at other people's pain, obviously. But I wonder whether or not in in this peacetime, this kind of post-war peacetime, we don't really get what it's like to have an arch enemy that delighted in killing your loved ones. I don't think we really get that. I mean, we have a common enemy at the moment, COVID-19. It's uniting the world as against this enemy. But, but it's different when you know that just across the border are people who want to kill you and your family members so that they can take your life. When you understand that, there is a point where there is victory at the demise of those who have caused such pain and anger and anguish. And this is what we see here. But then we see more about the destruction of Babylon and so on. We'll fast forward now to chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, and we see the reaction of God's people. This crowd comes together. Have a listen to this. After this, I heard what what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, Praise the Lord! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of the servants. The crowd of heaven join in the party because the very hub of evil is now destroyed and they are cheering. They're cheering God for judging this superpower and they're they're praising God for the punishment that's been poured out. And then after the elders and the four living creatures praise God, there's another voice, verse 5. From the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. The one on the throne says, Praise God! And everyone does that. Verse 6 and 7, it's a great song of joy. Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. That's how loud this is. And they're saying, praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honour to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself. Everyone on God's side praises his name. 
You are the true king. You are in control. And they rejoice. And they give him the glory that he deserves. And they talk about a wedding. Huh? Where did did that come from? Where's the whole wedding thing here? There's a wedding of a lamb that's about to happen. And this is the same lamb who has been on the throne but looked like it had been slain. So the slashed up lamb is now going to have a wedding day. I, 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 I tried to prepare you for it. Revelation's weird. Yeah. But what we have here is that it's talking about Jesus as the groom. But who's the bride? It's us. His church. The bride of Christ is his church. It's you and me. It's our wedding day. And there we are with Jesus. The prostitute now is replaced with the bride. A complete contrast to the evil of Babylon. We now have this beautiful wedding and we are all part of it. And in response, John, who's the guy who's seeing all this vision, he just falls over himself and he begins to worship the angel. And he says, verse 10, I fell down at his feet to worship him, the angel. But the angel said, whoa, no, 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 don't worship me. I'm a servant of God, just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. I'm just one of you. Worship only God. For the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. He says, John, don't worship the angel. Worship God. And right at that point, who might turn up? This is pretty cool. Verse 11 and, and following. Then I saw heaven opened. We're really getting to the pointy bit of Revelation. Okay, Heaven's opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. It's kind of like something out of Lord of the Rings or something, isn't it? You can almost imagine, or, or, or some of those sorts of shows. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. There he is, right there. It's Jesus. Jesus is before us. And he's coming to strike down his enemies. Friends, this is the, the, what we're getting to now is that the end of evil. This is where we're at. Because next week's all about heaven and joy. It's amazing. But check this out. Verse 19 of chapter 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and the armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. All the bad guys think, oh, bring it on. Well, again, we're going to have a fight. We can do this, guys. Let's rally together. White horse. Wah. And what happens? Well, 
it's a bit almost an anticlimax how smashed up they get. Verses 20 to 21. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophets were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. And the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. Whoa. All of these mighty forces, the most powerful rulers of the world, have come together and said, oh, we're going to have a fight with Jesus and we are going to win. We're going to crush him. And it's embarrassing how much of a defeat they receive. But it doesn't stop with the beast and the second beast. It's now time for Satan to get smashed. Yes. And so we look at chapter 20, verse 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Okay, angels seized up Satan, thrown and locked him up for a thousand years, and then after a thousand years, he's released and so on. All of this, can you see what's happening? Satan is being controlled by God. Satan wants us to think that he's just so tough and mighty, but really he's got nothing. He's like this big puppet which sort of kind of does these sort of punchy things, but really he's nothing. Walk up to him, push him over. But now we see his victims. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They all came to life again and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So all those who have been killed because they loved Jesus are there victorious during this thousand year time. But not all have come back to life yet. Verse 5 and 6, we read, this is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them the second death holds no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Uh, I won't go into a lot of detail about all of this, but basically the rest of God's people did not rise to life at the first resurrection, which ushered in this period of time. But they get all the benefits of this first resurrection. And the thing is that they don't experience the second death, which is basically hell. So the first death is when we no longer live on earth and when we die, when we breathe our last breath. But the second death is hell, which they do not experience. Because then, during this time... 
They will be reigning with Christ in this state of time, waiting for the final return of Jesus. But it'll come to an end, verses 7 to 10. When the thousand years come to an end, Satan will be led out of his prison. He'll go out and deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. He'll gather them together for battle, a mighty army as numberless as sand along the seashore. And I saw them as they went on, went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people in the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies who had consumed them. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. And there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that's what happens at the end of these thousand years. Satan lies, he deceives, and he tries to convince the great nations that they're stronger than God. But that's a dumb thing to do. And finally, in this big battle, all the rulers gather to fight God, and it's a big fizzer, and fire comes and eats them up. The devil is then tormented forever. What we see then here are the final moment of the devil and those who are on his side. And of course, as we've seen time and time again, the lamb wins. And because the lamb wins, we win. The lamb wins and therefore we win. What's all this to know about? Well, I actually gave a long answer to the question about the millennium a couple of weeks ago. I won't give you it all again, but just basically, I I think as we understand the book of Revelation as we do, that numbers and animals and all these sorts of things are are to be understood figuratively. It's a genuine truth, but, but we don't necessarily need to count things exactly the same way. And I think the the period of the millennium here, it's talking about a thousand years, which is a long time. It's a set time, but it's not literally 1,000 years. In fact, as you see it described here, I think we're in it right now. That we're in this time now where Satan, though he is bound, he is able to go around and cause all this destruction via his mouth, by his deception, by rousing up others to fight. But at the end of the day, those who have died under the sword in this time are at peace ruling with Christ. All of this shows us in this time that I think that we need to see that the devil is bound up right now, even though he is going around mouthing off all the time, attacking us with his mouth. And yet he knows that his time is short And it's not long before Jesus returns. Because then we see now the people of the world running in fear. Verse 11, I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. And now the devil, Mr. Smoke and Mirrors Man, Mr. Froth and Bubble Man, is finally destroyed. And everyone on his side think, oops, didn't really back a winner, did we? Because now all people stand in judgment. Verses 12 and 13. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. This is the final judgment. This is judgment day, and it's coming. And you can know that if you're on Jesus' side, you're safe. And if you're not on Jesus' side, then you're not safe. The message from Revelation is so clear there. This is the biggest 
thing that is coming to our earth. And if you're friends with Jesus, it's not a problem. If you're not friends with Jesus, it's a massive problem. It's not a day that you should fear, but others should. And so we read verse 14 and 15. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. The death was thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, even death is now destroyed. That is how great this destruction is. The great enemy is now finally destroyed. It's a picture here of the end of the world as we know it. But it's a picture here of the victory of Jesus. Babylon, which stands for civilization that shakes its fist at Jesus, will now be destroyed and all who live in her city will share her fate. Now, I don't like to see things being smashed down. Great feats of human ingenuity and great human creativity being destroyed. It's not a pretty sight. But when those civilizations unite to stand against Jesus and to hate his people, we cheer, and rightly so. We cheer when we see things God's way. And that is the message here of these four chapters that we've just raced through in this time. But can you see that there is joy? Because if you're in the midst of horrible, horrible persecution, you can know that the Lamb has won, and so have you. And so you can cheer as we read in chapter 19. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honour to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself. Let me lead us in prayer. We thank you, Jesus, for your victory on the cross over Satan. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are returning soon. Help us to be ready. Help us to be waiting. And we thank you that if we are your friends, then we have got our name written in the book of life and we need not fear that day for a moment. And we pray, Father, for those who still love Babylon, that they would see Babylon for the evil it is and that they would turn to Jerusalem, that they would turn to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, that they would turn to Christ Jesus in his temple. And that we all, with those who trust in Jesus, might rejoice in the victory of the Lamb, in whose name we pray. Listening to Jamaloo and the Lane Church.